Welcome to the Zavzatis podcast from Ukrainian San Antonio, the show where we meet and dive into the stories of incredible people who work to preserve and enrich Ukrainian culture and history. In addition, we also explore the personal leadership, tenacity, and bias to action behind the stories of our guests. Each episode is an inspiration to find new ways to engage with Ukrainian culture and traditions. Well, good morning, and thank you so much for being with us today. I'm very proud to present Lydia Bodnar Balahutrak. She is an American-Ukrainian artist based in Houston, Texas, and whose work will be featured in a virtual exhibit in the month of November throughout the different organizations on social media and online platforms in the U.S. Lida, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for very much for inviting me. Your work normally would be displayed in person, but this is a unique opportunity to present your work to through virtual experience to a lot more different people. This exhibit is dedicated to 87th anniversary of Holodomor. So it's a very interesting, very impactful artwork that I think a lot of our listeners will enjoy. So Lida, can you just start a little bit and tell us about yourself, your Ukrainian heritage, and how you came about as an American artist focused on Ukrainian history and culture? Well, thank you. Well, like many Americans in the United States, I belong to more than one culture. So one is my ancestral heritage because my parents came from Ukraine. They were forced to leave after World War II. And then, of course, I was born in Cleveland, Ohio, and I am an American. Now I live in Houston, Texas. So growing up in uh, Cleveland, I was surrounded by an immigrant community uh, from mm-hmm. Europe, primarily. And I went to Ukrainian school every Saturday. I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. I was lucky to have both sets of grandparents. So Ukrainian was spoken first. That was my first language that I learned. And um, I actually did not know any English when I went to kindergarten. And I'm very grateful, although it was always a little bit difficult to speak Ukrainian to my family and then translate and speak Ukrainian and then translate. But in fact, that had served me in good stead because now I can go back and forth and I have an appreciation for other languages, the challenge speaking in a particular language and expressing oneself. So that, that's a big part of my work now because it really is a carrier of the culture and the history of a people. I have always wanted to be an artist. I grew up in a very creative driven household where artistic activity was at the forefront, not necessarily professional artists, mm-hmm. but engagement in uh, crafts and uh, poetry and literature and music. So that was kind of a natural thing. And my early work was very figurative, essentially drawing the human figure. And realism wasn't as interesting to me as the spiritual part of being human. And I think that was because I spent so much time in Ukrainian churches with my grandfather, who happened to be a Yunyat priest. They were allowed to marry, so there's nothing untoward. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so those kinds of a certain reverential attitude toward the world in general has probably come from that. And then the, my first trip to Ukraine in 1991, along with my husband, who is also Ukrainian, was a pivotal change to actually see the country and to actually see the extent to which the Soviet regime had destroyed so much mm-hmm. of the country, but not necessarily the will of the people. There was a kind of reawakening happening 
because shortly afterwards, the mm -hmm. Soviet Union fell apart. And when was the, t the first time you went to Ukraine, Lida? Uh, it was in the spring of 1991. So it, it was still the Soviet Union when you visited Ukraine? Yes, it was. And no one, you know, we had no idea that it was going to be dissolved within a year. And, no and you have grown up in the Soviet Union. Yes, yes. I, I did grow up in the Soviet Union and I clearly remember Ukraine's independence. Holodomor, for me personally growing up, I've never read about it. I've never known about it until Perestroika, when things started opening up. And I remember my great-grandma, Motria, telling me about Holodomor and how people came to the house and just took everything away. And I remember being angry. I was a teenager at the time. I was so mad about that. I mean, how somebody can do that. I'm sure you probably read, heard stories growing up. And I'm just curious to know how Holodomor came to be such a central point of your artwork and also what kind of research you do. Uh, well, that first trip to Ukraine, which was part of an artist residency in Vyu, I was mostly in Vyu region, and mm -hmm. then I made a trip to Kane. And they were distinctly different in terms of the Ukrainianism that I, having been born in the United States and experiencing the emigre kind of Ukrainianism. So the view was becoming reacquainted and reclaiming itself, whereas Kiev was still very Soviet, as I define it. So it was a pivotal turning point for somebody who never experienced that or lived in that, but only knew Ukraine via songs and literature and remembrances of my grandparents and my parents. This was kind of earth-shaking, and it was wonderful, in a sense, to see the spirit of the people, especially in Western Ukraine, and the hope for something better. And it was perestroika then. So with that, when I came back to the United States, because, like you, most people did not either know about Holodomor or they chose not to talk about it. And that also, Chernobyl, that had already occurred and it was a theme that was picked up in the United States. And yet there, there was a hesitancy to even talk about it. So I thought I was going to be bearing witness to mm -hmm. something that occurred within my lifetime, the Chernobyl event, but also something like the Holodomor, which I thought was an important, very important part of history. So I came home to the United States and started researching and reading about it and photocopying pages and photocopying images. There were some, not very many publications, but those available were like publications from Harvard University and mm -hmm. other scholarly publications that I took advantage of. And then instead of recreating that event, I decided to use pieces of text that actually referred to the actual event and photo images of the photographs that were available because these were actual events and mm -hmm. I wanted to portray them in a real way, but also under the guise of, of spiritual met metaphors like mm -hmm. icons and other subjects. But that was the impetus to actually share that story, which I thought was a universal story with a larger public and do it via my artwork. A lot of the artwork, and when our listeners will come and see the exhibit online, they will see that it's a very interesting portrayal. Uh, it's layers of information that you have to uncover and really pay attention. What I really like, a couple of black and white pieces, and it was an orphan girl, it's called. It's a, for me, it was a very powerful 
image. It was black and white, simple, but very impactful. So in those situations, where did you find all the photographs or images that you used? Did you work with anybody in Ukraine to produce those documents? What kind of help did you get from them? Uh, in fact, I didn't uh, ask anybody from Ukraine. This was all research that I had done in publications that were actually published in mm -hmm. Canada or the United States. And even the literary references were by immigrant writers. Very good source was a memorial exhibition at the Wiedener Library at Harvard. And they came out with a brochure book, Famine mm -hmm. in the Soviet Ukraine, 1932-33. That was a great resource because they had chosen photographs from various sources mm -hmm. and also included quotes from various sources. So that was the beginning. And from it took me to other sources. But the photographs that kept cropping up in all sources were very representative. They became like icons, like mm -hmm. an orphan image of a girl that you mentioned, and there were other faces of children that I used over and over. Yes, I really also like the hiding and seeking portrait. It's a black and white portrait of a, I think it's a girl, but it's a child, clearly a child looking very concerned. And you can really feel the fear and they are in the eyes of this child and also the unknown what's going to happen it's very a little bit disturbing image but really powerful image that represents the emotional torment that the child is experiencing your artwork is very interesting in terms of mediums that you use was it anything inspired by ukrainian culture because you know we have a lot of wood. Uh, you also produce 3D artwork, which is very impactful with Ukrainian rushniki and sorochkas, etc. Yes, well, it's mixed media, which is that all-encompassing mm -hmm. phrase now. But I think that that breaking point after the first trip to Ukraine, before that, I was very traditional in my mm -hmm. materials. They were drawing on paper and oil painting on canvas. And the experience um, was so fragmented in many ways and my compulsion to bring it together, also objects that were given to me, including Vishokya, including books, including books of poetry. So somehow to integrate those actual things rather than reinterpreting them with oil paint or, mm -hmm. or charcoal on paper. So that inspired, I guess, and that kind of way of working continues to this day. The objects had some meaning beyond you know what they may appear to somebody else so you have you respond to it through your own frame of reference i was gratified that i had occasion to show the series of another kind of icon gallery here in houston the response was you know very gratifying because people responded to it in a very humane way compassionate way they read the images in a way that i would have hoped that they did not have to necessarily know the history, what particular event I was talking about, where that photograph of that mm -hmm. child was, was uh, sourced, but they could respond to it um, on a very human level. I would probably encourage everybody to go and visit the exhibit and other works that Lita has online. It is very engaging. One of your artwork is called Hide and Seek, but I also think all throughout your work, it is a little bit of hide and seek because you as a viewer need to discover and interpret it for yourself. You know, you talk a lot about discourse in your work and the discussions. What do you hope that people who view your work, what kind of conversations and discussions do you hope they have after viewing the exhibit? Well, actually, the series is called Hide and Seek because that is, in fact, what I want 
people to do. There's something about the imagery that is meant to be healing, the images of nature and even the ones, the earlier work that are of um, children that draws the viewer in. And then when they get closer and take time to really look, they should discover bits and pieces of text and other images, other photo images that will relate to one another and create a story. It is a dialogue. It takes the another person and hopefully draws them into a conversation with the work. And when they step back, all the images and bits and pieces coalesce to give you another image. From a distance, things may appear one way, but when you come closer, you find more. Some things are revealed more, some things are revealed less. I start out with a collage on the paper or the canvas, mm -hmm. and I do photograph it for my own records. Uh, so that I know what the ground is at first. And the collage at this point is made up of articles and photographs from newspapers mm -hmm. and magazines. And when I arrange them, I see associations and I bring to the work uh, for myself a meaning. Uh, what comes before something else? How do these connect? How do the headlines really emphasize the story? So I am in, in a way directing the work forward and the image that is laid on top, added and subtracted. And a lot of it is evolved over time. It, it has a life of its own. And I'm never sure quite what it's going to be at the end. I know perhaps that these will be thorns or thorn trees, but yeah. how much they're going to impact on what is underneath uh, depends on the outcome and on the material that I use, whether it's paint or charcoal. And then determining when is enough and what to leave revealed and what not to, what to cover up. It's almost like an archeological kind of decision. So I have several works going on at the same time, small and large, because everything is laid in layers. It's, it's built up over a layer of time and layer of materials. And I appreciate having a chance to give a talk or present the work, but also just to get feedback from people who have occasion to see the work, because when it's out in public, discourse is a very important part of it. And I think there's a lot to uncover and understand, especially another kind of icon. It's a very powerful series of images because icons such a big part of Ukrainian culture. I grew up seeing icons. And when I look at it, it see these images. It's not what I'm used to. It makes me question and understand why are you combining this icon of Mary and Jesus, but it's not Jesus, it's a child uh, that really, you can feel the pain when you look at them. Yes, and, and the title of that series, which really probably totaled over 30 pieces, they were all the same size and they were meant to show the relentless suffering uh, during the Holodomor. And the photographs of children or mother and child or sister and brother, you know, whatever they were, I laid them over well-known Christian images. Mm -hmm. So I used the icon conceit 
I had no intention of pretending that they are actual icons, but the formal conceit of having a border, the image in relief inside of it, and the suffering, the victim here is an actual human victim uh, that is overlaid over the Christian icon. So that, I think, could be understood even by people who are not Christians. That's where I introduced Ukrainian elements mm -hmm. along the Order, whether it was a frame that had been carved or it was embroideries that were overlaid over the body of a, a family victim. And those things really are especially appreciated when you see the actual work because you can see what is on top and underneath. I know we've spoken before and you mentioned that your grandparents have told you about Holodomor, but clearly you've done a lot of research for yourself to produce such amazing artwork. Was there anything about Holodomor that really shocked you when you kind of dug deeper into it versus what you knew from your, from your parents or your grandparents? Oh, I think the extent of the deaths and the desperation and dehumanization of that horrible policy and how people suffered and struck me because what I had heard in the Ukrainian community were stories by those who had witnessed some of it, but oftentimes they ended up in German labor camps and uh, they did not know what happened afterwards. So the accounts are horrendous that Robert Conquest gathered in his book and also a recent book is Anne Applebaum, The Red Famine. But I do want to also bring up the aspect of disinformation, if mm -hmm. I may, because one source that would have been valuable was Walter Durante, the journalist in the New York Times, who was assigned to cover the Soviet Union at the time. And he did know about the Holodomor, but he chose to downplay it and ignore it so as to keep his lifestyle and have access to Stalin. And the United States was eager to come to acceptance of the Soviet Union, so they also kind of had a blind eye. But anyone who claimed that within the Soviet Union there was a famine going on, they were accused of spreading anti-Soviet propaganda. So that's how it was really something at that time that was covered up, and Potemkin's villages were set up for dignitaries to see when they even came to the Soviet Union or were taken through Ukraine. So something of that horrible a nature that it could be covered up, and so few people would know about it, and it was written off as just this little, you know, famine, no big deal. If that yeah. uh, is horrendous, that's what struck me, and that's the thing that I... I guess I question even today the extent of disinformation, misinformation, and how that can be used anywhere. We don't have to go back to the Soviet era to really just see it in play. Um, and, and something to be vigilant about, you know, how we get information and what is available, what, what is twisted, what is omitted. I mean, it's definitely misinformation about it. And through your artwork, you're really giving voice to the people who suffer. I mean, it was a terrible death that they've experienced. They should have not died. There was plenty of food, but it was all taken away from them. And not only did they die, but their, their pain, their suffering were erased uh, by this disinformation. 
And now that it's back, I mean, it's very important for, all, for, for not only for Ukrainians, but as a humanity as a whole to remember these kind of events because history does repeat itself. But with Holodomor, it's an event that the world still does not know as an act against Ukrainians. It was designed to suppress people. And it's important to bring it up and make it, people aware of this horrible event. Yes, and the fact that it actually was a genocide, it was directed toward the Ukrainians in particular. And there are as many as 10 million people estimated mm -hmm. died, between 5 and 7 million. That is something that historians and scholars can debate, but no matter the number, it's an, an incredible number of deaths. And like you say, the extent of suffering was vast. So bringing that up, is not a matter of depressing people about, but it is something that needs to be acknowledged and needs to be known and needs to actually enter the history books so that, like you said, so that kind of thing is not repeated although history does have a tendency to repeat itself in one form or another, but at least to knowing history, as um, Timothy Snyder writes in his book on tyranny, at least if you have some examples from the recent history, the 20th century, you can be a little bit more aware of what is happening around you. And awareness plays such an important part of preventing things. If you know about these kind of events, you know things to look for and recognize the patterns that mm -hmm. eventually lead to terrible outcomes. I highly encourage everybody to go and visit the website with Lita's work. It's very powerful. You have to look at the picture, but you really need to zoom in and spend a couple of minutes to look into it because there are layers of information and everybody will discover different. And I like how you said it's like an archaeological work because it really is. You're really dig digging deep uh, and uncovering things in your images. Lida, you know, what else I was going to ask you is Ukrainian culture. I just wanted to hear when you were growing up, what kind of traditions did your grandparents and parents brought from Ukraine to United States and how you kept up with those traditions when you were growing up and even today as an adult? Well, in uh, the language was the first introduction to the culture. Both my brother and I grew up speaking Ukrainian to my parents and grandparents. And so they would read to us and we read and we wrote and read in Ukrainian. So the language really opened a door to read poetry and sing the songs and actually read the history um, that was available in the original language. So that is an entry into that world. Aside from that, the communities banded together to keep the holidays and the holiday traditions alive. So within the Ukrainian Christian community, Christmas holidays and Christmas Eve dinners uh, were something that you know I grew up with. And actually, even after I married and we moved to Houston, Texas, we would host Shviat Bachir the day before Christmas, the Christmas Eve yeah. dinner, and had as many as 20-some people at, at any given time. The, this was especially people who had moved to Houston, Texas because of jobs. Mm -hmm. They were young couples uh, or young single people who did not have the means to go to their family and celebrate with them. 
And in some cases, they weren't even Ukrainian. <laughs> they were just interested. So that, that kind of was an opportunity to, do, to share those kinds of holidays. I went to Ukrainian school every Saturday. A school, a public school was rented out and we had classrooms and we had teachers and many of the teachers had been teachers in Ukraine. They were emigres and they taught history and geography and a lot of the ritual songs for Hayilkia for Easter, for instance. So the paradox, I guess, for me was when we went to Ukraine for the first time in 1991 and we were in Lviv, even in Lviv, there were younger people that were just awed that we knew the words to songs and poetry and, and, and then we knew about um, aspects of history that they did not know. Yes, for many Ukrainians back then uh, in the 90s, there was a lot of history that none of us knew. I remember being a teenager and all of the newspapers writing these articles and it was history that happened to, to our people in the Soviet Union that none of us knew. You know, we grew up with a wonderful stories, how wonderful communism was and how many wonderful things it brought, but it never discussed the price people had paid for these called wonderful stories of, the, of communism. You know, what else, I mean, when you were talking about you growing up in Ohio, it's really struck me the power of the community the power of people, that collective effort, the love and passion, and people working really hard to preserve it. I teach my kids Ukrainian, but it's even today, it's hard for me to find books in Ukrainian in the United States. But it's so impressive that you growing up after World War II had access to these books <laughs> in Ukrainian. Where did you guys find them? I'm just curious. Well, um, I even taught Ukrainian school in Houston. And most of the books that I used came from Canada. The Ukrainian community is, what uh, was anyway, much more active, and there was a larger community proportion-wise to the general population in Canada. So they had resources, and they would publish books, uh, workbooks, specifically suited for teaching mm -hmm. uh, in elementary school. And then uh, in New York, um, there's a Ukrainian museum that is a good museum as a resource uh, to, show, to point you in directions where to go to find books like that. But my generation, which is the, you know, um, born in the 50s, let's say, or, or earlier, um, we grew up as Americans. And uh, I am happy to discover for myself colleagues that are in um, schools teaching, mm -hmm. they're historians, they're writing books, uh, they're writing literature. Oskar Minuchuk has been awarded and he's written novels that the stories are Ukrainian based and they become part of the so-called mainstream then. Um, I, I can now tell somebody to read Anne Applebaum's book, Red Famine, it's about the famine. I don't have to go to some source that was published years and years ago and that may not be you know, as easy to read. Here is somebody who is alive, mm -hmm. much alive, and active, and chose to write about this. So it, it, the interest in Ukraine I think has gone beyond just the people that have a Ukrainian heritage. Um, it is uh, worthy of uh, exploration. And mm -hmm. I think if also people have gone to Ukraine as tourists. Absolutely. And two summers ago when we were in Ukraine in Lviv in August, 
I think I never heard so many different languages. There were people from Germany, from England, from Holland. They were all tourists. So they, Ukraine is actually back in the news. And we definitely, as Ukrainian community here in the United States, need to continue to support the efforts of making a lot of these things mainstream. That's why I would encourage everybody who visits the virtual exhibit also share this virtual exhibit on uh, social media platforms because a lot of people, everyday Americans or other people throughout the world do not know about Holodomor and about this terrible event. Uh, It's a somber event, but it's an important part of a history for Ukrainians and for the for, for anybody to understand why it happened and what we can do to prevent these events from happening in the future. Well, Lida, thank you so much for chatting with us today. I've really learned a lot, a lot of interesting things. I think for a lot of us who've if you've listened to this podcast and you go and look at Alida's work online, you will have a different perspective and better understanding uh, of the artwork you're seeing. So thank you so much, Lida, and thank you for talking to us. And we hope to chat with you sometime in the future again. And I thank you for the opportunity and also the opportunity to showcase this work, which is really it would be hard to gather it all in one place for an exhibition. So the virtual exhibition is really a wonderful opportunity to share it with others. Yes, and please do share it with others. Just click on that link and share on your social media. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lida. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Zavzatis podcast from Ukrainian San Antonio. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Lydia Bodnar Balahutrak about her art and her virtual art exhibit called Holodomor, A Remembrance, that commemorates the 87th year anniversary of the Holodomor famine genocide, which occurred in Ukraine in 1932-33. To learn more about Lida's work, please visit her website at lidiabodnarbalahutrak.com, and to see the exhibit, please visit our website, ukrainiansanantonio.com. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, and or leave a rating and review. Until next time, goodbye.